0: Kia ora kato, kau ko toko ingua, and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in New Zealand's world of local government. So, if you want to be a politician? Welcome to episode 3 of Local Aotearoa, which is all about local government elections. And this one is going to be a two-parter. I was hoping to squeeze it into a single episode, but I'm nothing if not verbose, so two episodes it is. So why discuss local government elections? At the time of recording this, our next round of local elections are only 364 days away. And yesterday we saw one councillor in Wellington and a local board member in Auckland resign which, seeing as yesterday was one year until the next election, actually means that um, their resignations don't trigger by-elections. So you can see why they timed it that way, because that obviously saves uh, ratepayers in both Wellington and Auckland uh, any money on that exercise. Now, that date, which is in terms of the next local government elections, which is the 8th of October 2022, could shift. Uh, there are provisions within the local Electoral Act um, already that allow the le- your electoral officer at the local level to delay it, or the Governor General through an order in council um, to delay it for various circumstances, but also central governments currently working through legislation that would allow it to delay those um, elections even more, uh, and that's part of the COVID nineteen response, and that's currently working its way through Parliament under urgency. But today we're going to work on the assumption that those elections on the 8th of October 2022 that they're going to go ahead as planned because we're all going to go out and get vaccinated right you're going to get vaccinated go to www.bookmyvaccine.co.nz and book yourself your appointments if you haven't done it already pause the podcast and go do it now I'll wait I'm not going anywhere thank you Getting vaccinated against COVID-19 is the single most important way that you can protect yourself, your Farno, and your friends against the virus. Getting our vaccination rates up is also the main way we're going to get lockdown restrictions lifted and get our old freedoms back. And I know we're all hanging out for summer holidays. I know I am. We've booked in to head up to Lake Topol for a week, and our two boys are hugely excited, so please don't ruin their summer holiday, go and get vaccinated. Anyway, with that public health message out of the way, why talk about local elections? Well it's mainly because, with them being a year away, a lot of people right now are currently deciding if they're going to stand. In our larger cities, some people are already announcing their mayoral candidacies. Which makes sense. If you're in a metropolitan centre, organising a serious campaign to contest the mayoralty takes a lot of time and a lot of money. So you usually need to be announcing your intentions this side of Christmas in the year before the election. Now, when I stood for the mayoralty here in Kapiti in 2019, I actually made my decision in December 2018 and then I announced in mid-2019. and. As you'll appreciate, Kapiti's not one of those major metropolitan centres, so a slightly different dynamic there. But announcing in January meant that I was the first candidate to declare my intentions, and for about six months I was the only candidate other than the incumbent, and that meant a lot of free press for me. Now, I went with that January announcement in part because I was a first-time candidate with very little public profile, so I knew I needed a decent run-up to uh, give myself the best chance possible. As I ended up only 871 votes short, and that I easily topped the rankings for district-wide councillors because we use a single transferable vote here in Kapiti, Um, I'd say that as a first-time candidate, that approach worked for me. Now, if you're wondering what my plans are for 2022, you're going to have to wait a bit longer, as that's not an announcement for this podcast. I've nearly made up my mind on what I'm going to do, but everyone is going to have to wait and see what that decision is. Which is the benefit of being in Kapiti, it's a smaller district and it means you don't have to announce anything as early as you do, as you would in a major city. Speaking of which, in Auckland we've already seen uh, the restaurateur Leo Malloy announce he'll be seeking the mayoralty there. Likewise uh, the local political party up there, communities and residents, they opened up expressions of interest for their mayoral ticket back in April. Um, now despite many rumours swirling around, Phil Goff as yet I haven't seen him announce any plans for next year, so if he does depart, the opening up of that playing field is going to make Auckland uh, I mean—it's an interesting election to watch anyway, because Auckland's obviously so important to the country. But as soon as you get that open playing field and you don't have an incumbent, then that's when really some quite exciting and interesting things happen, I think, in um, local body elections. And that's what we saw happen in Dunedin last time, where where, uh, I think it was David Cull um, didn't seek re-election. And then we ended up with Aaron Hawkins there, who's the first Green Party mayor to be elected anywhere in the country. Well, the first one on the Green Party ticket, I should say. Meanwhile, in uh, Christchurch, we've got Councillor Phil Major, who's uh, previously famous for digging his own trench to drain some waters, I think it was. Uh, he's announced he'll be seeking the mayoralty there. Um, and in a similar vein into what would happen in Auckland if Phil Goff decided he didn't run again, uh, Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel has announced that she won't be standing for re-election in 2022. So Christchurch is definitely in for a uh, fiercely contested election, given it'll be an open playing field there. Back now in my neck of the woods, and I don't think anyone has announced a campaign for the mayoral Chains in Wellington just yet, but I'd be assuming that Mayor Andy Foster will be seeking a second term, um, though given the issues they've played around publicly from around that council table, it's definitely that will be definitely an exciting race regardless of whether he seeks re-election or not, because there's obviously a lot of live issues in Wellington at the moment, um, so that will be hugely fascinating too. Now both Dunedin and Hamilton have first term mayors and so I'm guessing both of them are likely to be seeking a second term Uh, while up in Tauranga we're waiting to see whether the commissioners appointed by local government minister Nana Mahuta back in February of 2021 whether they're going to be kept in a little longer or whether there will be local government elections there. Now as there are 78 uh, local regional and unitary authorities throughout the country You're going to have to forgive me for just focusing on the big cities in that little quick overview. Um, But that's also in part a reflection of the media coverage available on potential mural races. So it's a bit easier to see what's happening in the bigger cities than it is necessarily the smaller provincial centres. But of course, mural races are only part of the equation. There's obviously councillors to be elected to all of these local government authorities, and then underneath there, there's uh, community and local board members to be elected to the various representative bodies that sit underneath those. There were previously district health board elections at the same time as those local government elections, um, but as DHBs are going to be defunct in the not so distant future, let's just forget about those for now. Uh, Other than I would note that you've You're probably going to have a lot of politically minded people from those DHBs who might just find their way into council ballots next year if I was to uh, pick what might happen there. And likewise, I'm not going to delve into licensing trust elections either. I mean, this podcast is already niche enough as it is. So for me, local government elections are fascinating for a number of reasons. The first is that outside of the major cities, Political parties are nearly non-existent in terms of candidates running on party tickets. Now that's probably a reflection of the highly centralised nature of authority in New Zealand, as political parties here are so under-resourced, even in good times, that they are generally forced to only focus on the bigger prizes available rather than smaller local authorities. Uh, Labour and the Green Party they are both notable for running candidates on party tickets in local government elections, uh, while the National Party on the other side, despite there being many pushes over the years to get them involved in local government elections, especially in Auckland, um, they have refused to do so in any official capacity. Now That being said, there are centre-right local political parties out there, and they often have very strong links to the National Party. As mentioned earlier, there's Communities and residents, which is one of the ones up in Auckland, and previously there was Auckland Future, and that one had quite explicit links to the National Party, if uh, people remember that campaign. In 2019, there was the creation of the Wellington Party, and well, Wellington as the name suggests, and again, they had very strong links to the National Party as well. Now, they did briefly look for a mayoral candidate to run on their ticket, um, but they don't seem to have gotten anywhere with that. and I couldn't see that they'd endorsed anyone in the 2019 mayoral elections in Wellington, but they did get a couple of candidates elected to the city and regional councils there. Now, down in Christchurch you've got the Independent Citizens Group, which has delivered a handful of councillors to their city council as well in 2019. Now interestingly, when you fill out your nomination form to be a candidate, you can actually specify your affiliation. So that's whether you're standing as part of a political party, as an independent, which is what I put down um, when I was running in 2019. Or basically, you can actually write whatever you want there to be, and essentially be an affiliated party of one. But as I said earlier, outside of those main centres, political parties aren't necessarily an overt feature of local government elections. Now, as I mentioned just before, I ran as an independent in 2019. And while I was very upfront about uh, talking about having worked for John Key and Bill English, I attracted volunteers from National and Labour and the Greens, and that sort of reflects that people are generally less party loyal at the local level. Now that's as much about where you stand as a candidate on local issues and what your personal values are, rather than the colours on your billboard. Though on that point I used um, blue, white and red, and I did that because they were the colours of uh, the Hora Whenua Kapiti provincial rugby team. Um, but lots of people actually projected their own political beliefs onto those colours anyway, which was quite amusing. Now, I guess the second reason that local government elections are so interesting is because it's tied into that first reason, is that because you don't have political parties there, you don't have, I guess, that level of professionalisation in terms of your candidates and in terms of the... Um, the infrastructure and the volunteers behind them so it's a much more raw and real experience for you as a candidate obviously but also for people on the outside to watch now in the big cities you get the big slick oiled machines that are directly or indirectly supported by political parties but when you get outside of the big cities or even just in the council races um within the big cities you start to not have that there and you i think because you don't have candidates who are quite so polished, you quite often get a much more interesting range of views. And it's a very m- more intense, more grassroots um, process than, say, parliamentary elections are. Now, fortunately, it doesn't get the media coverage that it deserves, which is unfortunate because local government does have a massive influence on our lives, as I talked about in the first episode. Uh, but that is changing. There is a whole lot of funding that's uh, coming out from central government to help support local democracy reporters around the country, and we're starting to see them pop up more and more. And that's a good thing because having media in council chambers and having them covering local government elections, it's so important to shine light on both the candidates, the decisions that council are making, um, to enable our communities to know what's going on and what's at stake and those sorts of things. And quite often, I'm sort of going off track a little bit here, but quite often you need media to be in the council chamber and at the um, candidate debates to actually get a real feel of the dynamics that are going on, You know, to catch the facial expressions, the little underhanded comments. It's all stuff that doesn't necessarily get caught on, say, live streams or that sort of thing, or even just to talk to the candidates and talk to the councillors and talk to mayors and build up those personal relationships that enable both the media to better report on things, but also for councillors to help better get out the messages about what's going on or what they're standing for when they're seeking re-election. And so that's, you know, that's quite an exciting development and it's really good to see it being funded. I know there's been some people out criticising that fund, but I don't think it would necessarily get funded uh, otherwise, so that's something that I think is really important and a really good thing that the government's doing in that space. Now moving on from why I love local body elections, from a legislative perspective, Local government elections are governed by the Local Electoral Act 2001. Now, that specifies everything from who can stand, how local authorities pick voting systems, rules for electoral advertising, how representation arrangements such as, such as wards or at large, which are often called district wide wards, that's what we call them here in Cupheading, how they're put in place, um, the powers of electoral officers, and a whole lot more under it as well. Now, I know that it sounds like a tour de force of the local electoral act would make for a wonderful sleep aid and it probably would but unfortunately it's really important to have a general idea of some of some of the processes involved in terms of how that dictates how you get to your election next year in order to actually um i guess make sense of what happens in those elections and why things happen and why it's all in place so that's going to be the focus for the rest of this episode So generally speaking, the process flows something like this. So during the triennium, which is what we call the three yearly period of local government terms, some people call it a term, some people call it a triennium, um, your local council will do a number of things. First, they generally decide what electoral system they're going to use, and in New Zealand we have two options, first past the post and single transferable vote. Now first past the post, usually called FPP or FPTP, is the list of candidates where you just put a tick besides the one you want to vote for. Whoever has the most votes once they've all been counted, even if that person doesn't have an outright majority, is declared the winner. Now the advantage of that system is that it's very simple to understand. Uh, Its disadvantage is that you don't necessarily end up with a candidate, being elected who has the support of or is acceptable to a majority of voters. Now single transferable vote on the other hand, um, often called STV, is where you rank the candidates from one downwards in your order of preference. As the votes are counted, the lowest ranking candidate is eliminated um, and each of their votes are redistributed based on each voter's second preference. Provided they had one, you could just take one, oh, sorry, not take, you could just write one, and that would be it. Um, Now, each time this process is carried out, it's called an iteration, and eventually you'll get to a point where a candidate reaches what's called the quota and they get elected. Now, there's multiple ways to calculate the quota and on how to treat surplus votes, which I'm not going to go into um, today, but basically. As a system, it is a lot more complicated than first-past-the-post and as a result it can take longer to deliver a result as the votes not only have to be counted but then they have to be recounted and distributed again at each iteration depending on um, how many times you have to do that to get someone elected or if say you've got uh, multiple positions you need filled within a ward or at a district-wide level um, then you've got to run those iterations often enough to fill up your number of vacancies. Now, the advantage of STV is that, in theory, the candidates who are most acceptable to the electorate do ultimately get elected because the candidates who obviously don't garner enough support, those votes aren't necessarily wasted. They can get the people who voted for them, they sort of get their second or third or fourth preference. So you don't, in theory, don't have that wasted, as much of a wasted vote as you do under FPP. Now at some point I will do a specific podcast on these two voting systems, what some other possible options could be, in terms of ones you could look at, um, or ones that are in place around the world, given the current structure of local government, as well as looking at ones that we could uh, use in the future, depending on what the future shape of local government is after the review into the future for local government gets completed, and if the government adopts recommendations from that. So, once a local authority decides what electoral system to use, the public can actually challenge that decision through a petition, which, if they get enough signatures, and I think it's 5% of people on the electoral roll within that local authority um, from memory, it will result in a referendum. Now, if that doesn't happen, then the local authority's decision stands. Now, at some point during this, Your council will also decide how candidates should be listed on ballot papers. Uh, Should they be alphabetically listed? Should they be in a random order, which is printed on all the ballot papers, so every ballot paper has the same random order on it? Or should every ballot paper have a different random order on it? Now in past years, cost used to be an issue in terms of randomising on each individual ballot paper, but nowadays Cost isn't really a factor, so there's not actually much of an excuse for councils to not be randomising every single ballot paper um, just to make things fair. And of course the reason why you want to do that is because occasionally, even under STV, voters um, will just tick the first name on the list, or they'll write one next to the first name on the list, or they'll go one, two, three, four down the list. Now we had an amusing incident here in Kapiti a few elections ago where, because uh, the candidates were listed alphabetically, the person at the top of the list in one of the wards, who didn't, I'm pretty sure they didn't campaign, other than the blurb that they wrote to go in the candidate booklet, that was essentially all they did for a campaign, as far as I was aware, um, they got themselves elected, and I think they got themselves elected as the top-ranked candidate. So you can imagine the frustration if you're a candidate who put in a whole lot of effort, and you get pipped at the post by someone who literally didn't do much, but they benefited from being at the top of the ballot like that. That would be a hugely frustrating situation. Um, there is an alternative explanation, and that's that the candidate wrote the world's greatest candidate blurb for the uh, the booklet that comes out with the voting papers, and it persuaded everyone who read it for vote, to vote for them. But I suspect it's more of a good example of the fact that Um, there are a number of people who literally just tick the first box or write one in the first box and they're done with it. Now at some point your council will also make decisions around Māori wards and they'll conduct a representation review. And these things are sort of connected in that you need to make your decision around Māori wards first and then you have your representation review because whether you have Māori wards or not has an impact on what you're going to look at for your representation review. Now in this current triennium. Councils actually got two bites at whether to have Māori wards, thanks to a law change uh, earlier this year that essentially removed the ability of electors to challenge the decision to have Māori wards via a referendum. Now, there were a variety of responses um, from councils. that, were, Some took the opportunity to implement Māori wards and others didn't. Now, carpety Coast District Council was one of those councils that didn't. And that was because our iwi partners, we've had a formal relationship with them that goes back uh, off the top of my head 1994, I think. Um, so nearly 30 years. Um, but we'd asked them towards the end of uh, 2020 about whether they wanted Maori wards. And our iwi partners came back and said they were interested in them, but they didn't want them in place for this election. They was something they wanted to look at in the next triune for the next election. Now, when the the law change came through, we went and um, asked them again and said, look, there's been this law change that means you, the public can't challenge this decision for a referendum, you know, should we look at including Māori wards this uh, election. And they came back again and re- reaffirmed that early advice um, and they, their focus was very much on their relationship with council in the interim and then exploring Māori wards in the next training because they weren't opposed to them. Uh, it was just they didn't feel the time was right for them, for them as the mana whenua of Kapiti. As I said during the debate on that decision, I'm a supporter of Marty Watts, but at the same time, as mana whenua and our, as our formal partners of Kapiti Coast District Council for nearly thirty years, ultimately I was going to respect their views on this, um, and I'm hopeful that next triennium when this does get revisited then it can be made to happen and that mana whenua are in a position that they want to support it too. Because having that mana whenua voice at the top council table is one thing and we have our representatives um, from mana whenua, we've got three iwi here and regularly we sort of get two of them turning up. I think we're hopeful that we'll have a third one turning up shortly. Uh, But having a vote at the top council table is far more powerful and influential in terms of representing the interests of their iwi. Now in the meantime there are other ways to give mana whenua a stronger voice and powers in the um, representative structures of local government and what we've seen this triennium is some councils are and this is a thing that Wellington City Council has done is they are having EB appointed representatives with voting rights on their committees and subcommittees of council, so not necessarily at the top table just yet, but on those um, committees and subcommittees underneath. Now, once councils have resolved whether or not to have Marty wards, the next step is what's called a representation review. Now, representation reviews need to be held every six years, and which year that is in terms of, I guess, your your triennium will depend on when your council first made a determination about its representation arrangements all the way back between 2003 and 2006. Now the whole idea of a representation review is to determine what is the most appropriate way to represent the communities who live within the boundaries of a given local authority, other than the matter of electing a mayor, which is always going to happen at city or district wide levels. Now I should chuck in here that regional councils, it's their freshly elected councillors after the election who elect their own chair at their first formal meeting following the election. So, slight difference here between um, your local councils and your regional councils. Now the process of a representation review involves a bunch of research about demographic and boundary changes since the previous election, and the previous representation review as well, actually, they refer back to that during it. Um, it will look at other representation models being used around the country. It will consider whatever um, feedback the local government commission gave in response to the uh, previous um, representation review that was submitted to them. They'll go out and engage with the community about their perceptions and experiences of dealing with council's elected bodies. Uh, they consider things like communities of interest, which isn't just necessarily what town you live in or what community you live in, um, but it's influenced by where you might work, where you might shop, where you might go for recreation within your district, those sorts of things. So there's a whole lot of factors that flow into it. Typically then, whoever is coming out, uh, carrying out the review will come up with a number of options uh, regarding those representation arrangements, and these will be for councils to consider. These could see an all ward model, where councillors are elected within a set geographical area. A mixed model, where you could have some ward councillors and some at large, as an elected across the whole district or city. Or you could have an at large only model, where all councillors are elected on a city or district wide basis. Um, Now, depending on the size of your city or district, there might be varying degrees of the weighting that you get with that basic model. A similar process is also covered off as to whether or not your council should have community boards or local boards or not, Um, what the boundaries of those should be, how members of those boards should be elected. You can even go down similar to wards for the council, you can have subdivisions for a community board. Um, so, you've got that same dynamic of do you have at large, do you have subdivisions, and what's the best way to represent the communities covered by that community board. Now, once that's been done, your councillors will generally narrow things down to one preferred proposal, which will be then approved by them to go out for a consultation with the community. The community makes their submissions, these are collated, analysed, and presented to councillors to read. There's public hearings where people can speak to their submissions, and then councillors will make final decisions in terms of the representation arrangements for the following election. When council finally does resolve what those arrangements should be, these then get sent off to the local government commission, so there's a final, I guess, um, sense check to the whole process. Now at this point, the local government commission, they can either accept uh, those representation arrangements as is, or if there's something in the arrangements that falls outside of their normal tolerances, Um, and a good example of this is if there's a plus or minus um, 10% uh, in terms of the ratio of residents to councillors compared to the average in a district, um, then that will cause the local government commission to have a closer look at the uh, arrangements that have been proposed, and they'll check to see what's actually gone on in terms of developing them and how how the councils had accounted for that and how they reached that. Um, Quite often the local government commission will accept the representation review but they'll include uh, instructions on things that the local authority should pay particular attention to when they next conduct a representation review. Um, That's I guess a reflection of Time involved in terms of you can't really go back and run the whole process again uh, when you're starting to get close to the election, so you need to bite the bullet at some point and say this is it, but you need to consider these things in the future. The other major trigger for the local government commission to review representation arrangements is if just one person that's all it takes one person objects to the council's final proposal, and again, that results in the local government commission undertaking that same process. So they're going to look at whether those arrangements are appropriate what evidence has the council put together and presented to its community about the rationale for that proposal and how they accounted for community feedback and for previous direction from the commission in developing that proposal that's gone to the local government commission now assuming let's just assume in an ideal world that the council's got it all right and they send it off to the local government commission the local government commission comes back and says right good oh you're all set and there you go, you've got your representation arrangements for the next election. Now if it doesn't go well, like I said, um, you've got a bit of time pressure because a lot of this process takes place from December of this year and um, wraps up probably around about February next year, which means you are getting close to that time when people are making decisions about whether or not to stand for council. So it doesn't leave much room for changes, they can make, they can tinker with things, but Generally, you'll find the local government commission doesn't chuck whole things out at that point. They'll issue um, instructions for things to consider for the next, the next representation review. Now, here in Kapiti, we've just finished our consultation period for our initial proposal for, from our representation review. And we've got public hearings coming up in mid-October. It's been a fairly controversial proposal, and it was one that I voted against um, going out for consultation. So currently we have four wards. We've got Ōtaki, Waikanae, Paraparaumu and Paikakariki Rōmati. Now Paraparaumu has two ward councillors and the other three wards have one each. We've also got five district-wide councillors, and I'm one of those. And then underneath that, we have community boards for Otaki, Waikanai, Paraparaumu Raumati as a combined community board, and Paikakariki. Now, in the proposal that was um, passed by council to go out for consultation, we would go down to three wards. We'd have, um, now apologies for my pronunciation here, uh, we'd have Kapiti Kiti Raki, the northern ward, Kapiti Kiwanga, the central ward, and Kapiti, Ki Tonga, the southern ward, and feel free to let me know if I haven't mispronounced those there. I'm not quite sure of the, cre- the correct pronunciation of the today there. Um, now, there would be single councillors for the northern and southern wards, and there would be three for the central ward, which was essentially a combination of the previous Waikanai and Paraparaumu wards, but with a few minor boundary changes. There would still be five district-wide councillors, um, and... That initial proposal also included for the disestablishment of community boards. Now, as I noted in my debate on the proposal when we were deciding we'll on whether to go out and consult on it, my concerns were twofold. The first was the loss of that layer of democratic representation and advocacy underneath council, which is where community boards play a valuable role. And I pointed out that in Auckland, with the Super City, they still recognised the need for a level of representation below the previous seven and uh, seven city and district councils pre-amalgamation. I'm just leaving the regional council out of that for obvious reasons because that was obviously an Auckland regional wide body. Um, but that's why Auckland has 21 local boards still. My second area of concern was the pen- potential for Waikanae, and that's a community that has one and four residents of Karapiti. To no longer have a guarantee of their own councillor if they were amalgamated essentially with Parapara Umu, especially when in in my personal view they are a significant community of interest in their own right. My preferred option during and this was during our process to whittle things down um, to a final option for the final decision, was for us to have seven smaller and more geographically targeted wards along with four or five district-wide councillors and also retaining community boards. Ultimately though, the initial proposal was passed to go out for consultation, and with that being said, and with councillors required to have an open mind for all decisions coming to us, whether we voted for or against that proposal, we all essentially have to reset and take into account the feedback from our community that they give us during those four weeks of consultation that we've just completed. Now, from what I've understood, there's been quite a lot of submissions made, and obviously quite a lot from Waikanae, as you might imagine. So I've got a very busy uh, few weeks of reading ahead of me when those submissions come through, and I think we've got probably about a day and a half um, to go through the uh, public hearings for that as well. So now we have a voting system. We've decided whether or not we're going to have Māori wards. We've decided what... um, what order candidates are going to be listed on the ballot paper? Uh, you've possibly you've reappointed your electoral officer at some point during this, um, and we've got our general representation arrangements in place. So what's next? It's the election itself, but for that you're going to have to wait until the next episode. Until then, I'm Gwen Compton. This is Local Alteira Areda authorised by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manly Street, Umu. All opinions expressed in this podcast are my personal views and not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council.